Which episode is this? Is episode four? Four. Episode four. Hello and welcome to episode four of This Never Happens, the podcast, still happening remarkably, um, in which we have today uh, Lillian, who's just back from Italy, but weirdly doesn't seem to have a tan. And then we have Christina in rainy Cornwall. And Ian in delightful Derbyshire. (laughs) Oh, I like that. Delightful. Let's get on to our favourite feature, which is highs and lows. Lillian, what was the high point of your last few weeks? Well, the high point of my last few weeks was indubitably leaving this godforsaken country where it always (laughs) rains and going to Italy for 11 days, which was amazing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about our holidays in a minute. So that's a, a, a trailer. Um, But my other high point, which I just thought of, is that today I went to see a new kitten. So I might have a new kitten soon. And it actually connects to the Italian holiday because one of the features of the Italian holiday was the area we were in had amazing white cheese, like kind of ricotta, mascarpone. But they had one called squacamole, which I just loved. And they had these things that were a bit like paninis, only they were called piadini. And they had squacamole, rucola, which is rocket, and prosciutto in them. And I ate a lot of those. Um, And I just thought squacamole was a great name for a cat. (laughs) So I came home and got a kitten. And I was thinking, um, this poor kitten, I could shout, squack, come in, squack. And that, that could get old. And then I thought, well, I could call it molly. So it could be cookie and molly, which could be molly. And that's quite nice. That's quite euphonic. So I'm quite excited about that. Oh, and the low, the low point, First. the low point of the week is the fact that it's been fucking raining for two days. <laughs> I like the idea that you get a kitten just because you have a right name for it. That's it. It's very Ray Bradbury. That's the only it's reason. Very Neil Gaiman, actually. It's very literally kids. nominative determinism. Well, I don't think this cat is actually made of cheese, but yeah. <laughs> we'll find out <laughs> Lillian's cheese cat <laughs> so Ian do you have any highlights um, I have a very quiet sheltered life so the highlight for me was uh, going down to Tesco um, a week ago <laughs> and cheese. everyone everyone was suddenly wearing face masks Woo. and I'd been the only person wearing face masks for the last two months so that nice. was a, a sort of a high highlight point, I think yeah yeah, we might talk about masks oh, later yeah. as well. Mm. What about your low point, Ian? Ah, uh, again, that's, that <laughs> ties in with holidays. This is the day I was meant to be heading to Edinburgh for the festival. Oh, yeah. And the festival oh. isn't there. Oh, it's yeah. online to some extent, but it isn't there. So this is the first time since 1974 I haven't been going to the Edinburgh Festival. Sad face, a, as they sad say. Sad face, very sad <laughs> very face. Sad. But don't do too much sad face, because you are in Edinburgh and somebody will think you're a mime artist. Mm. <laughs> Not in this rain. <laughs> <laughs> 
they might be so desperate for festival that even in the rain yeah. they'll think you're my actually martyrs. that is my theory is that the rain the, the, the weather always precipitously disintegrates as the English tourists arrive for the Edinburgh Festival. And obviously no one told the Edinburgh Festival the weather this year <laughs> that the Edinburgh Festival wasn't on and it could stay nice. <laughs> oh, well. Right, so, Christina. Christina, yes. The big reveal. Yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't really got a big reveal. All I've got is the fact that um, I suppose one of the high points was that my job contract was finally renewed. Mm two days before it was due to expire. So, nick of time. (laughs) (laughs) So that was quite a high point. Um, Yeah, um, I guess my holiday, but um, we'll get on to that later, (laughs) as Lillian says. (laughs) And I I couldn't think of a lot of low points. Just, you know, I could talk about the weather, but um, the only thing I did think about was really the amount of tourists that seem to be arriving in Cornwall and the fact that it's, (laughs) yeah, so dear, the fact that it's quite, um, I guess there's quite a lot of people who come with an attitude of not really caring. Because we're on holiday. Because they're on holiday. So despite the arrival of the face masks, um, there's still a lot of people wandering around quite clean, quite close proximity along the streets and things like that. But I've, I've generally managed to keep out of their ways, so I'm probably not that much of a low point for I me. feel guilty now as someone a... who's going to come and be one of those tourists. But... Oh, but you'll be a good tourist, that's all right. I think so. You've been trained I've, up to wear your I've face mask. I've been trained up between Scotland and Italy. Perhaps, should we talk about masks then before we go on to talking about holidays? Yeah, and maybe you could tell us what it was like in Italy in terms of the mask wearing. Yes, that's... And when you were travelling. That's a good idea, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, well, yeah, one of the things that was really... Well, amazing, actually, about being in Italy was how normal it felt, but normal with masks. So I suppose not that normal. But, uh, you know, everyone just seemed to be going about their kind of living in a holiday city or near the beach type life, but with added masks. And people just seemed very, very well trained. I mean, it obviously helps to be in a hot country where you can do a lot of your shopping and eating outside all the time and obviously you're being on the beach. But whenever people, you know, went into a restaurant, they would put their mask on and then when they sat down, they would take it off. When you went in to go to the toilet, people would put their mask on. You'd take it off in the toilet. Well, I did, you know, so you're having a little break (laughs) from wearing your mask. Um, And it was quite interesting seeing the differences on planes on the way out, actually, because... On the way out on Ryanair, I thought um, that everyone was actually behaving very well. Um, There wasn't any social distancing whatsoever on the plane, you know, and some people would have gone berserk, I suppose. You know, they weren't weren't missing out middle seats or anything like that, so you just have to kind of hope. But people were wearing their masks, and, you know, it was quite a long time to be wearing a mask, really. Um, But on the way back on EasyJet, as I have told countless people, I thought things were much worse, and I was very unimpressed with EasyJet. You know, there were people standing in the queues not wearing masks. I think there were people on the plane not wearing masks. No one seemed to do anything about it. And this has kind of got me into trouble saying this a few places because then people go, oh, they might have a reason not to wear a mask. And, oh, you can't ask anybody, you know, why they're not wearing a mask. And I don't 
don't know if I'm convinced of that, okay? Maybe I'm just some kind of fascist. But I think in an emergency pandemic, when you're about to be squeezed into a tube of metal for two hours or three hours with people, I think you've got a right to at least ask them why they're not wearing a mask. And I think it might be a good idea, as indeed some charities are rolling out, if they were wearing some kind of badge, you know, that just indicated I'm someone who can't wear a mask. And I don't think, as a signed-up kind of civil society person, that that is an unreasonable invasion into civil liberties. I actually don't. I think in, <laughs> I think in Germany they're going to be giving people on the spot fines if they're not wearing the mask, instead of just asking them mm. to wear their mask if they find them and then finding them if they don't comply. Of course, I may misunderstand this because it was all talked about in German. <laughs> so it may not be what they're doing at yes, all. We're all very impressed. As it discussed before the recording, uh, Christina's been watching the highlights of German news, which is probably a lot more sensible than some BBC news right now. Um, news in 100 seconds. And what I would like... It's all you need. Yeah, what I would like is a kind of recounting, in fact, of the news from all the different countries of how they're dealing with a number of COVID-related topics, such as mass, such as test and trace, you know, such as the app, which I'm still interested in, I'm afraid, and so forth, because it just seems like we constantly in this country have people saying or doing ridiculous things and you all the time wish you knew what are they doing in France or Spain or Germany or Italy or something. Perhaps all our many overseas <laughs> listeners will write in and let us know. Yeah. You mean both of them? <laughs> <laughs> what, there's two? Yeah. I think there might be more than that. Actually, there's, there's three. There's a Norway, a Spain and a, and a USA. That's just data from the first two or three days since the podcast was put up. But I don't want you to think I'm just rushing out data uh, without it being fully peer-reviewed uh, in the way that many of the COVID papers are being published these days. As someone who's never been impressed with peer review anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this is a really good change in the culture, but I'll probably... Well, I, I, yeah. I think at this point we can all see that uh, the quality of peers is going down. Boris's oh. appointments. I thought I was thinking of Piers Morgan. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh. I, no, he's going up. I was thinking up. it's like Southend. South end <laughs> Why were you thinking of Southend beer? Is it just something why like not? The, the first <laughs> thing I thought of was peas, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You can take the you can take the girl out of Southend, but you can't take the Southend out of the girl. Now for my favourite part of the podcast, the locks. This is where I get to talk uninterrupted by either Lillian or Ian and just communicate with you, the um, lock writers. Right, first up from the hotbed of Emoc infection, aka Croydon, we have Claire. And she wants to start out by reminding us that Emocs is not a new concept at all. Since you're calling them locks, I thought I could actually send this as a document rather than a semi-random email. Although that means this isn't an emox, so maybe the infection is over. To claim solidarity of Ian for using the term, though, I shall again fall back on the technique of sending you extracts from old fanzines and calling it proof. So, here's an illo from Ian Gunn, 
that Ian Gunn did for us 24 years ago, the Illo, which of course you can't see on the podcast, but maybe Ian can put it up somewhere, is of a duck, I believe, with a spear and the word emox underneath it. This is Claire's proof that she listened to episode three of the podcast. Uh, she didn't know what to expect, which is not unusual because we don't know what to expect either. Um, but <laughs> she was, wasn't was expecting Ian to know more about Lillian than Lillian does herself. So she speculates that doubtless this one's going to run and run. By episode 17, the story involved Ian performing the Portuguese entry for the Eurovision Song Contest, while Lillian was leading the revolution, age six. Yeah, I quite like that idea. Apparently I could write this up, um, but would it come out as a dystopia or a light breezy comedy? Hmm, I don't know. I think I'd go for breezy comedic dystopia. Meanwhile, Claire's looking forward to the episode of Norseman where the Icelanders come to visit in their jumpers for a music competition. I'm slightly disappointed that this never did happen in the series or, you know, life. Well, maybe it's going to happen in a new series, which I haven't watched yet, but maybe Claire has. On to page two of this spectacular lock. Um, yeah, so Claire's worried that she's very much a doom scroller, possibly even one of those people you therefore don't want to talk to about the ongoing state of plague and associated anxiety. And then, she said, I found myself yelling at the PC during your muddle of unlockdown rules discussion. Um, what she felt like yelling was that if I wanted this level of life confusion, I'd listen to a government press conference. Yeah, fair point, Claire. And then I imagined Michael Spicer's version of the commentary on that segment of your podcast and cheered up a bit. Yeah, I think Michael Spicer could do a lot of stuff for us. Uh, then Claire talks a little bit more about her Duolingo prowess and the fact that she's been top of a Diamond League for... I don't know, months, years. and um, But all the same, she didn't know much about Verlaine either um, and pointed out that ants appear less in the French models module than the Swedish ones, which is true. I don't know why the Swedish module keeps teaching us the word for ants, but not flying ants. And another thing she wasn't expecting was a song. Well, nobody expects a song. That's certainly one way to provoke people to respond to you, she says. She wonders whether Rob, whether people have had the whether Rob Jackson and Graham Charnock had the Sorensen treatment before. Mm, oh, I'll have to leave that very into what answer. <laughs> That's the bit I like best. She said, "I really like Lillian's Christina's hushed tones as she hoped Lillian wouldn't hear, hear her reviewing fanzines." I envisaged her recording from a cupboard in the big Spanish house where you all conceptually live together. Yeah, well, I wasn't recording from a cupboard, just recording from the same room as I normally record from, but I think I always feel a little bit more hush when I'm talking to myself rather than to anyone else. Yes, and she's relying on John Coxon to take the strain of responding to cricket commentator lockdown sitcom, remarking only that there are more women involved these days than Lillian's treatment implies. And, yeah, I think the sitcom section would have been better if either Ian or Lillian had actually known anything about cricket. But that's just a personal opinion. Right, I think that's covered most of what we've had from the hotbed of EMOC infection. Uh, not much else, really. We've had um, comments from 
two Daves this time. First of all, Crazy Dave, who just um, just comments, if you haven't had Vivino recommended after episode one, the boy must be either further behind in his podcast than me. Meaning, I think, John Coxon. I should have followed the link before I started talking. And then one from Dave Hodson commenting on my review saying, Blimey, the footy column I write for Nick gets nice words from Christina Lake, which, which makes me feel quite flattered. No, you earned it, Dave Hodson. But he says, I still can't quite bring myself to watch reruns of Buffy. And then, out of much correspondence from Nick Fiery, I just have to point out that, um, that he says that he's been inspired to suggest that um, Hodmison himself, Graham James and Tommy Ferguson should do a post-season footy podcast which will be all your fault oh my god what have I done I should have mentioned as my other high point of the last fortnight, damn it we were going to Mention talk it about now. Geeky well, Geeky is my law, technology and popular culture workshop that I help run every year, which has incredibly been going on for 15 years. Um, and we ran it for the first time virtually last week, Thursday and Friday. And I don't know, I would say probably that it was really successful on the whole. Um, we had very good people at it and we had people from everywhere in a way that wouldn't normally have been possible. So we did have this girl from New Zealand, we had people from Australia, we had people from America, Canada, Belgium, Hong Kong, India, uh, lots of Australians actually. Um, so the problem was programming it because the Australians had to be on first thing in the morning, right? Or it would have been four in the morning. And the Americans had to be last thing on the programme. <laughs> so you couldn't have a panel with the Americans and the Australians on it at once. This sounds I, exactly like what people were saying about yeah, New Zealand. <laughs> I know, that's why I was feeling very sympathetic to New Zealand. It took me much longer to plan this programme because I plan the programme every year than it normally does. You're like a con runner, a geeky con runner. I am I am a geeky con runner. There's always lots and lots of really silly papers at Geeky and um, someone wrote it up and said the whole point is either to have a really serious paper that's completely undercut by something stupid like a lot of cat memes or to have something that appears to be completely banal but underneath it has a really serious point and I think that is true. I think that's what's strong about it. The paper that was best for that, I thought, was Ruben's sewage paper, which eventually made the Sun newspaper. <laughs> uh, That's fame. Yeah, it's partly because Ruben's, Ruben's best pal is apparently, yeah, a journalist for the Sun, so that's how. Um, but because we found out that, and this is true, that the new thing in COVID-19 is that rather than testing everybody, you might be able to tell if it was prevalent in an area from analysing the sewage, analysing the wastewater, right? And you can actually see spikes in the percentage of the virus in the, the sewage water really quite successfully, apparently. And this is... Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and this has been used for other diseases. So um, Ruben, that was doing this paper... Uh, told his mate who works on the Sun newspaper about it. So it appeared the next day as a big story in the Sun and it was headlined something like 
this way for turd immunity, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> <laughs> Almost worthy of me. Indeed. 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 I'm sure you made it up first, Ian. <laughs> no, 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 I, I read it on Twitter. Anyway, uh, I can't help but feeling we have plumbed the depths here, <laughs> literally and figuratively. I think you're right. Uh, Geeky had a lot of interesting papers. Um, one of the more uh, contentful, less less stupid ones was about the polygraph or lie detector. Um, and it was really interesting looking at it as the kind of antecedent of fake news because, as we all know, boys and girls, lie detectors don't actually work, you know? But they became really, really popular and still are to some extent with some police forces. Um, but one of the more interesting bits that came out of that as a kind of pop quiz was who invented the polygraph, <laughs> which I knew because it was William Marston, who also uh, was the creator of Wonder Woman. And then I remembered all the links between basically bondage and domination, Wonder Woman, <laughs> the polygraph, and polyamory. It's a really, really fascinating set of stories uh, mixed up together there. And then I said, oh, my God, there was a movie about this. I must go and watch it. So the net effect of going to... Uh, an IT law conference was that I went home and paid seven ninety nine to Virgin Media to watch what's it called Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, and then I made everyone else watch it too. So this is this week's uh, media moment. I think we should start having a this week's media moment. Uh, I feel which... that I feel that I should be inserting a little jingle here. Yes, you know, yes. Media moment. Right. Media moment. Well, <laughs> you could write us. You got to write us one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we need more music in this podcast, clearly. So, what did we think about Professor Marsden and the Wonder Women, boys and girls? Hmm. Well, uh, I I know that Christina had already seen it, and then you saw it, and I I saw it, and it's definitely not a sort of movie I would watch normally. Um, Why? It's, it's I about that. people and the relationships between people, and uh, <laughs> not for me. Um, and I'm not interested in comics, and certainly not interested in polyamory in the nineteen was it nineteen thirties and forties. I started that, in 1928. That's, that's yeah, a lot of things not to be interested in. You know, people, not, not for sitting and watching a movie for about it for two hours. Um, it wasn't... Uh, it was a good movie, uh, and the acting in it, I thought, was, was outstanding. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I'd already seen it, as Ian says, and um, I think we have to look at... Um, Marston's disc theory to explain <laughs> why I actually got around to watching it again. I think probably disc it stands for dominance, inducement, submission and compliance. Very good. And I think Lillian did some inducement <laughs> and I was very compliant. Was I, not, was I not dominating you then? No, I don't think it was domination and submission. And one of the things I did find interesting about the film was kind of that difference between compliance and submission mm. because I don't know if you'd agree Lillian but I thought Olive was submissive but not compliant 
<laughs> I, I don't know enough about the discourse of BDSM um, to know, you know, I'm sure it's categorised in all kinds of ways, you know, it, it, like polyamory to me always seemed like a really badly run legal system. Like you're just constantly negotiating the terms of your contract instead of like having sex or watching TV. And that's one of the many reasons why polyamory has never appealed to me. Although it does seem like really good training for trainee lawyers, actually. <laughs> so that's what we should make them do for you, be polyamorous. And indeed, my own paper at Geeky, by the way, was about sex and the single bubble and it was in fact about how the coronavirus rules for lockdown and guidance uh, were, were there to interfere with your sex life or enable it in various ways that that went down reasonably well um but yeah the, i mean the bit that i i thought i found it very interesting i found here's a terrible thing to say i found it quite arousing at points actually so i thought the film was doing mm-hmm. its job really uh was that spanking the babies? It, it was spanking the babies, actually. <laughs> did, that, did it do it for you as well? <laughs> no, it seemed to do it for um, Elizabeth, didn't it? What about Doug? <laughs> it, uh, he couldn't even remember the film oh, very well, sad. so it often, probably, probably didn't do it for him. I thought that was a really well done little scene, actually. There was something about maybe not the what was the word i can't remember the word beginning with c um what's the what's the c compliance compliance not compliance but uh complicity there was a really interesting complicity i thought between her down there watching them watching her the kind of voyeurism of it perhaps i'm more interested in voyeurism than i am in submission that's interesting as someone who's done quite a lot of work on surveillance and occasionally looked at arty stuff about surveillance and there is something there i think about being watched doing something sexual that's really really transgressive to me perhaps more so than bdsm so yeah that is very interesting you know okay that your, your check is in the post but the bit <laughs> <laughs> the bit I didn't like about that, and this is a bit of a spoiler, is that near the end, um, it's kind of it's kind of they, they're obviously looking for a resolution to the plot line, in which the dominant woman has to submit, has to be uh, compliant, and they're kind of tying all the knots together. Ha 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 ha! Sick, <laughs> Very sick, good. sick. That just came up my subconscious. Um, And I didn't like that. I didn't like that. I think there is a bit of me that still thinks that for a woman to be forced to be submissive, even if it's with her own willingness, as it were, is really bad, is really bad news. And actually, I'm reminded, and here's a Spanish reference, of the piece that Sherry Coltsmith wrote for the original This Never Happens. Wow, who remembers that? Which was exactly that, in which she said, like, you know, People talk a lot about bondage and submission, but if any man ties me up, I'll fucking deck him, basically. (laughs) And she wrote a piece about that for us for TNH, that essentially BDSM was bad news for second-wave feminists or whatever it was then in the 80s, for 80s feminists. And I suppose I still feel a bit like that, even though you're not allowed to say that anymore. (laughs) Didn't you think that uh, the reason that she, she was submissive at the end was because she was aware of his condition and she was just doing it out of love she was just doing it because it wasn't worth when they just had a reconciliation with with the third party um, to start a big fight over it I think it had a 
probably far more symbolic meaning in the film mm. than just that. Yeah. I think this is almost where um, Marston was trying to go with this particular yeah. relationship. Yeah. Because I think it was an in, a very interesting triangle. And at one point he says he he really wanted two women because he wants the different aspects mm. of women. But I think actually what he wanted was he didn't want, although he was obviously very attracted to his wife, he didn't want some of her personality because he also, you know, she's always been the one that's figured as a neurotic bitch. And the other woman fits in with his theories, which his theories are about... Um, women being very gentle and nurturing and giving the kind of the world changing through the lovingness of women so his wife didn't really exemplify that whereas the next woman he pulls into their triangle does I don't know about that I think there is something there about how the two represent two different things he wants simultaneously that you're unlikely to get in one person because yeah um, part of him rationally thinks women should be empathic and mothering and be better people to be running the world in that sense but part of him and that was another really powerful scene I thought is the bit where they discover BDSM where they go to the costume shop he was Marsden mm-hmm. goes to the costume shop and they're dressing up that was really well done I thought again quite rousing actually um, and the guy who owns the costume shop just goes well he's a submissive and um, I hadn't actually clocked that until then, which is maybe just because I don't move in these circles. But then it all sort of fell into place for me. Of course he had this wife who was basically the one running the show, although he was the one that was given more power in man's world. You know, and that's where also the Wonder Woman references come in rather nicely, you know, because she is clearly the one that's Wonder Woman. The other woman is not, right? She's the one with the dark hair. She's the one that's trying to show that women are the ones who have, should have the power in man's world when men are fucking it up, which, again, speaks to you quite a lot right now during COVID-19, actually, where the women are the ones who are getting everything right and the men leaders are the ones who are getting everything wrong. <laughs> I, think in, I think you're right, but in a sense, Olive almost embodies both parts of a woman because... If you, I mean, the thing I found interesting when I first watched it was the fact, which is obviously historically true, that she was the niece of Margaret Sanger, who was the oh, yeah. um, contraceptive, uh, you know, big mm-hmm. feminist uh, campaign of contraceptives, and so she kind, she kind of had these two things. She had this feminist uh, strength in her from her sort of relations, and she was also this pure Catholic. She was brought mm. up in a Catholic convent, so she was kind of was heading towards the embodiment of both those things he wanted. Well, I guess... And she yeah. was the one that um, kind of went, first of all, went with the whole bondage thing. Yeah, that's true, and that's not what you would have expected, and that was, I suppose, what I'm getting at there. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is probably true, and films always try and make people into archetypes, right? Films have got to be heightened mm-hmm. versions of characters because, you know, that's how they write them, you know, having done endless film writing classes um you know people who are as muddied as real life people don't make good films i was interested in what your opinions on whether olive is on the in some ways is olive being abused by the two of them the two of them have power mm. and she doesn't and that becomes very clear at one point mm. in the film doesn't it 
I thought that Olive was being very deceptive, particularly early on. I think she was being the realist rather than the yeah. pretending to be an innocent. Yeah, I didn't. That, that's not where I expected you to be going with that, I have to say. I did think it was interesting that uh, you get that scene where she goes, well, I'm not sexually jealous. And you go, yay, you know, and it just reminds you of all the Marge Piercy novels you've ever read and so forth about bohemian people living on Cape Cod. And then, of course, she turns around and goes, don't fuck my husband, you know. And I thought that was really well done, actually, having said that films don't do nuance well. There clearly was nuance there in that partly she does say rationally this will upset our professional relationship. But obviously, emotionally, part of her is really worried her husband will be taken away. Um, and it's Olive, which is true. That's one of the real strengths in Olive's character, who basically goes to Elizabeth and says, I love you, I don't love him, though that seems mm-hmm. to be presented by the film as a lie with the lie detector scenes. But she seems more attracted to Elizabeth for a good percentage mm. of the film than to Marsden. Um, and that is also... I mean, I really, really liked the complexity of the relationships, it's much, much more complex than, I wouldn't say any other, but many other portrayals of threesomes I've seen on, on telly or in films. Yeah, I think that was one of the strengths of it. But going back to the lie detector, don't you think basically it was a MacGuffin in that film? <laughs> it was just a device to allow them to say the things yeah. that, to show that they what they're lying about and what they're not saying. Because in reality, as you say, lie detectors don't work Mm. anyway, but even if they did, they didn't know that what they were saying were things that they didn't know were lies, were truths. And this lie detector was more like like a magic truth detector, like Wonder Woman. Well, it's just clever screenwriting, isn't it? I mean, from an artistic point of view, I really liked it, the way that they tied up, as as people do all the time. You know, you can see that the magic lasso of Wonder Woman was clearly informed by him having been the inventor of the lie detector right and by this interest in bondage and submission and to use it also to tell the emotional story of the kind of vicissitudes between the three of them mm-hmm. I thought was rather brilliant actually yeah <laughs> it's a real a real gift for them and did you notice in the pictures at the end that the lie detector really does look like bondage no no I didn't wow so all, wow. all the things that you have to put around yourself oh, to do wow. the lie detector end up looking like I mean it is the unlikeliest combination of stories I mean (laughs) I said afterwards to someone I mean you really really if you made this up no one would believe it you know the combination of him inventing the lie detector him inventing the first sort of feminist superheroine the 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 polyamorous relationship the bondage and submission it's just all so unlikely you know the early days of psychology I mean it's a great story I don't know why someone didn't make it into a film earlier so, so one of the more trivial comments I have about the film is that uh, when I was on holiday in Italy, as Apple said, um, Michael and I went to San Marino for the day, which is its own proper country. And that means it has its own proper country domain name code, which is .sm. <laughs> <laughs> while we were there, we were discussing this film. And we said, oh, wouldn't it be good if we got bd.sm? <laughs> sold it for a great deal of money because we looked it up and discovered it was available but the reason it's available sadly 
is because the San Marino domain name registry don't sell their domain names. You actually aren't required to. You know, like 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 Tuvalu, who have .tv, have made more than their entire country's gross national product from selling the .tv domain name. This is true. Uh, but San Marino don't sell theirs. So I'm afraid bd.sm is out there, but you can't get it. <laughs> Which in itself sounds like a metaphor for something. <laughs> Well, I've talked about my holiday in Italy. How was your holiday in Devon? Was it Devon or Dorset? <laughs> it was Devon. <laughs> I keep forgetting this. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Lillian she... goes on the holiday to exotic places like Italy and I go all the way from Cornwall to Devon, <laughs> which is not very far. So... Uh, the reason I was going to Devon was because my sister was camping in Devon and I wanted to camp as well. So I thought oh, I'd be just a good way to try out um, going out of Cornwall, doing a couple of things that uh, that we used to do before lockdown. But I tried to book onto the campsite and they didn't have any spaces at all which I think is fairly normal. I've certainly heard word that the whole of, there's 100% of the capacity of Cornish campsites has been taken up. And That's I think good, the reason good for the economy. Want, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess partly, yes. The reason people want campsites is they kind of feel that they can control their environment a bit because they're in their own tents. They don't have to rely mm. on going into somebody else's house. OK, shared toilet blocks, but some people, people with camper vans, etc., have their own toilets. So obviously they're filling up the campsites as well. So anyway, we couldn't get into the campsite. So we booked into a, the thing that was next door to the campsite, which was a study centre. Yeah, what what was that? What did that mean? I couldn't understand that. No, well, I didn't really know from um, Booking.com what it meant, apart from the fact it sounded like a very overpriced hostel. And yeah, in fact, or an open that... prison, my current obsession. <laughs> no, it was not like an open prison. It was actually quite a, a nice little place. And one of the things I liked about it from the pictures was that there seemed to be a lot of outdoor open bits around mm. it. So basically... It was a study centre where people take a load of school kids um, to go and do environmental stuff. And, of course, there weren't any school kids there because, one, it was the holidays, two, it was COVID. So, actually, it was really, really quiet. Um, The accommodation Mm. block that we were staying in, the first night, I don't think there was anyone else in it or maybe only one or two people. We did get a room that had ensuite in it, but um, so it was kind of all there. But mm. as I said, very basic. It but was... you didn't have to find a toilet block. <laughs> no, no, no. We would. I wouldn't have booked if we'd had to yeah. do that. And could you but... test your own DNA to combine it with previous obsessions then? <laughs> this is not that kind of study centre. Oh, it's bummer. very much, it was an environmental study centre with um, quite a large mission statement that had 101 <laughs> things that you you need to do, including being very Ooh. sustainable, etc. And the best thing we saw there was that they had something, events we'd miss. One of them was a squirrel appreciation day. Oh, I can appreciate squirrels. <laughs> exactly. Can, can I go so back miss- to discussing my kitten at this point? I'm the official <laughs> animal member of this triumvirate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will... 
I'll let you do that. But Aww. yes, squirrels. Squirrels. <laughs> so Thanks. anyway, it was it was pretty good, but really hard beds. They obviously oh, think these rooms are for teachers, so they're not allowed Actually, to enjoy themselves. Sorry, that's that's my cognate point, which is either I was staying in cheaper hotels than usual, <laughs> or every bed in Italy is very hard. Has any could our Italian going readers <laughs> write in and tell me? Because I have never I slept in about four different hotels one way or another. Because we were in Pesaro, Rimini, Sant'Arcangelo, and somewhere else. Name dropper. Name yeah, dropper. Yeah, it was good. I, I've learned to pronounce all these words properly, so I just. I get that. Um, but my God, were the beds so hard. I really need a <laughs> massage now. <laughs> so there you go. You don't have to go to, to Devon or Dorset <laughs> to get a really hard bed. So anyway, we were very lucky because it was sunny for at least two of the days we were there. Um, it had a beach. There weren't too many people on the beach because um, it was a really long beach. OK, it was a bit of a mis- misnomer because it was called Slapton Sands and the beach was full of pebbles. But you can't have everything. Slapton's a very pretty village, actually. It had mm. two pubs, so it was my first time back in a pub after they reopened. Ooh. Oh, that's interesting. So how was that? How did that feel? It felt a little bit chaotic because the people running the pub had tried to make it safe, but actually had made it less safe. Oh, God. So... Basically, you were supposed to sign in and do your ordering. And so everybody ended up in a queue just in the kind of small entrance place oh, to the no. pub. That's not and good. you couldn't get past that queue to go and get your tables. So you just oh, ended yes. up in this bottleneck, which was that's, that's terrible. Um, really quite annoying. But apart from that, it was, it was all right. I also nearly got into trouble at the pub because... Um, Myself and my sister wanted to buy a bottle of wine, so we were trying to get um, find out what wine bottles they had. So the woman sort of passed over this wine list, and I, I took it, and then she said, no, you mustn't touch this. Yeah, this is, not, yeah, this is right. our only copy, and, and you know, yeah, she's going to have they, to go away and fumigate it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's true. They all have QR codes now. It's amazing how the QR code, the you know, the most redundant 1980s piece of technology has now zoomed back into fashion. <laughs> it's even pivoted back into fashion, actually, to use an old I joke. don't think this pub in Devon had anything like a QR code. It didn't have any table service. But as soon as we sat down with our drinks... Um, um, it was lovely. We were mm. out in a garden. It was mm. sunny. With, it was kind of old with a wall, you know, oh, lovely. a lovely yeah. old orchardy wall. <laughs> walls it are was... always good. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do Unless without prison. walls, as Trump would say. <laughs> so anyway, it was it was a nice experience once we got over the mm. signing in and messing around with um getting everything sorted out but it's but interesting yes, it's because all the edinburgh pubs i've been in uh which isn't that many but a few uh have had yeah i mean table service quite a few have got qr codes for menus um i think a few have had paper menus but mostly qr codes actually they do seem to be catching on um and it's all been quite organized so obviously that's an urban phenomenon yeah, I think this part of Devon is quite remote and not metropolitan. But other bits we went into when we went over to Torcross and um, B Sands, which was lovely. They all seem to be a bit more organised over there. 
And I suppose the other um, the other feature of this part of Devon is um, that there's a great big tank in the car park. <laughs> a great, an old Second World War Sherman uh, kind of tank. tank. Yeah, that kind. Not like a water tank. Yeah, not like the kind that Ian has to fill up or Yvonne will shout at <laughs> No, not at all. <laughs> I thought you were going to say uh, flying ants. <laughs> well, I was going to mention flying ants, but only in the sense that this connects to the fl- flying ants story via the D-Day code that we talked about last time. Did which we? Which Lillian still doesn't understand the connection for. No, I don't. Sorry. So anyway, Slapton Beach was the scene of a rather sad event, which was um, they were doing a D-Day rehearsal and everything went wrong. So over 400 soldiers were killed because uh, they mistimed the live ammo part of the exercise. And then another 750 people were killed by a German e-boat attack, uh, which sank a couple of the landing boats. So they were just... Just practising for that whole oh bless mon coeur moment of D-Day when all these horrible things happened. And that nearly led to them cancelling D-Day. And so worried that some of the high-level people that knew all the plans for D-Day had been captured by the Germans. But then they found the bodies, so it was all right. Wow. So, like and no one knew ca- much about it at the time because, obviously, um, they need to keep it secret so as not to jeopardise D-Day. And... All the locals had been turfed out um, because they basically turned it into a military area for the duration. And um, it really only sort of came out gradually when somebody, when people were beachcombing and found all these bits of ammunition and stuff. And eventually they fished a tank out of the sea in about 1984 and put it in the car park. And now wow. they have a little memorial for all the people that died at that point, which well, is... What about all the bits of people? Where, where, what did they do with them? Actually, I looked into that. A lot of them went... <laughs> what did you do on your holiday, Christina? <laughs> I looked for bits of people. <laughs> no, uh, pa- <laughs> Well, apparently a lot of them were taken off to be buried in Surrey, to, I guess as part of a cover-up. But um, there's also rumor, local rumours of mass graves in Devon. I mean, it, wow. it was horrible because a lot of when the boats were sank, it wasn't that so much people were were immediately killed, but they died of hypothermia or oh, or um, problems with kind of putting their life jackets on. And the only good thing was that some of these rehearsal points actually helped them do the D-Day landing a bit better, so that they gave people <laughs> training on what to do if they <laughs> fell in the water and things like that. So I guess it had a vaguely um, useful this use sounds to like it. a sequel to Titanic, you know, Titanic yeah. 2, Death in Devon. Yeah, and they were all American servicemen as well. And the final interesting thing for me about all of that was actually Tor Cross was where my grandmother was living at the start of the war. So she'd probably been turfed out by then. But... Could 
do rant sub 9b at this point which is that everything you ever read from the english media and indeed from the english government presupposes that we can all live in this wonderful alfresco paradise for the rest of our life avoiding the virus and they they have not been to scotland Mm. you know however many space eaters you have it is not going to be a pleasant experience and you know on a note of could i give you my 9c rant on this which is every now and again they say everybody should be doing more cycling Oh yeah. Not yeah, in yeah. Scotland you can. Yeah, yeah. Cambridge. Yeah. Cambridge, you can cycle anywhere you want. Copenhagen. Yeah. Brussels. Amsterdam. Uh, Col- Cornwall's not flat, but people can still cycle Doug there. Doug can cycle. Yeah, there. right. Doug has got is mightily thewed. And the same in Edinburgh. I think the other thing I think the other thing is people are buying electronic bikes, so But they cost about three thousand pounds. I looked at buying an electronic bike, and they're more expensive than a small car or a small pony. (laughs) And more easily stolen. Yeah, (laughs) they're ludicrously expensive. It's just not like buying a second-hand bicycle. Well, I haven't really looked into that. I just know a lot of people have been buying them, and probably because there are a lot of hills in Cornwall, so (laughs) people want to cycle, but it's not always that easy. Mm. I think the combo of it being the price of a second-hand car with really bad weather makes it quite a bad investment here. It's probably much cheaper to run than a second-hand car, though. That's true. And you don't have the same... You don't have all the overheads, do you? garaging problems. Yeah, but you also can't bring your shopping home from Sainsbury's in it, or your... Panniers! Panniers, I tell you. I do more shopping than that. I just think generally that there is a lot of um, youthism, um, you know, middle classism, yeah, about this whole discourse, you know, and basically Mm. bikes are fine if you're single or maybe a couple and you're not responsible for carrying around a family with a dog and sports equipment and all your stuff from Sainsbury's and all the rest of it. And yet, haven't you seen those bikes that carry two children in a trailer behind them? I have, and they look very, very unstable and precarious. I keep thinking those children should be taken into care actually (laughs) (laughs) I think it's all it's all increments isn't it I mean if people who can go cycling and can walk to work then it's quite good to be able to encourage them to do that of course it is but I do think that right now it's all part of the picture there are two really incompatible things going on right now and this is a real Edinburgh rant sorry um which is the Edinburgh City Council has been doggedly trying to make life too difficult for anyone to have a car in Edinburgh for a very long time and you can see their point okay um I have a car in Edinburgh it doesn't move very much I always say it goes to Glasgow and sometimes it goes to Waitrose and it hasn't gone to Waitrose lately because I haven't gone to Waitrose lately so it's gone to Glasgow and that's fine and I have to fight every time I move it to get it back into anything resembling a residence parking place so that's one of the reasons why it doesn't move very much and it's my problem if I am paying too much for a car I don't use very much um but the fact is that there are lots of people in Edinburgh who are older fatter less fit for reasons that may or may not be their own fault um, and for whom cycling is just not viable. And there are a lot of people who need to drop children off at school and then go on to jobs or stop at jobs and then go on to school and carry stuff around. And cars are useful. There is a reason people like cars. I think I have a solution that will make both of you happy, which is 
to if the elderly and uh, vice able don't want to to go on public transport, but sh everybody should be on bikes, then there should be tandems, and you should have a young fit person <laughs> on the tandem, yeah, and they can that. have an older person with them, and we can turn it from a pandemic <laughs> to a tandemic. Oh, that's okay. That can stay. No, thanks. I've, I've never said that before. No, that I must be awful then. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like that. As mentioned earlier, we have yet another erratum for this edition. Well, I suppose it's an erratum for the previous edition, in which I asserted that all the songs used in the Eurovision Song Contest in the film Fire Saga were the same tune, just performed in different styles. On re-watching the movie, I've discovered that I was in error. They're not the same song, it's not the same tune, it's just the same chords. But then nearly all popular music today uses the same five chords. Here's an extra erratum from Lillian, which everyone will be much more excited about than Eurovision because it's about kittens. So I said that my kitten was going to be called after the soft white cheese in the area I visited in Italy called Squacamole. Unfortunately, I got the name of my own kitten wrong because it's actually squacaroni, like macaroni, only not. Um, so that's going to be the name of the kitten. And that is quite fun because she squeaks a lot. So she's going to be squeaky-rona because squacaroni becomes squacarona for a female kitten. Unfortunately, it has been pointed out to me that Rona is also short for coronavirus and I don't really want my kitten to be named after an infection. So watch this space. There may be a change yet, but at the moment she is squeaky Rona. The other kitten, her sister, is called Leia, as in Princess Leia, and they are the squeaky girls. <laughs> Here endeth. The Kitten Bulletin. So, with that, it's time for us to do the goodbyes. And this is goodbye from Christina, and it's still raining. <laughs> and this is goodbye from Lillian in Edinburgh, where it's uh, possibly not still raining anymore. Yeah, because it might be the future. Uh, and it's goodbye from Ian, still in Derbyshire, and it's still denightful. <laughs> denightful. You're just in denial. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs>